Good evening. It's good to see you all this evening. Awesome to be here. If you have your Bibles, we will be continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. And if you've been tracking with us, we have arrived at chapter 11. As we pick up the narrative in chapter 11, we will find Jesus continuing to methodically make his way to Jerusalem, where he will ultimately suffer a devastating rejection of his ministry, leading to his death on the cross. That's where this trip is ending. And with each chapter, as we make our way further and further through this gospel, we see the shadow of the cross looming greater and greater, right? As he marches towards the ultimate rejection of his ministry. But this is no tale, <laughs> trail of tears here, guys. As we pick up chapter 11, we see our Lord at work. We see him teaching, revealing truth. We see him even condemning those that need condemnation. So let's pick it up, chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And as John taught his disciples, and he said to them, when you pray, say this, Father, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we have ourselves forgiven everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. So the first section that we're going to cover here is an abbreviated version of the Lord's Prayer, right? It's the model or pattern of prayer. And I don't know if you guys all caught the first verse, but did anybody... See the scene that's being set? Has anybody noticed the classroom at which Jesus is going to teach about prayer? Anybody catch it? He's going to teach people to pray in the prayer field, right? And isn't that the best place to learn anything practically? Right? Theoretical teaching is done in a classroom, right? Theology is mostly studied in seminary. But when you want to learn something practical, follow around an expert in such field. Amen? It's the best way to learn. And I think these disciples, after watching Jesus' prayer life, <laughs> I think they saw something. They saw the numerous, natural, and needed, necessary prayer that enabled him to have such an amazing life and ministry. They saw that. I think they saw it as his secret to success. Amen? Constantly communicating and connected with his father. Constantly. And as they saw that, they saw something amazing and powerful. It was what they saw was his secret to his ministry. And they wanted it. They didn't want it theoretically. They wanted it practically. And so they ask, Jesus, teach us to pray. Pr teach us to pray 
in a way that's appropriate to our distinctive relationship with God through belief in you. Not John, but you. And so as we see here, Jesus obliges them and he answers them by giving them and us, I think, a pattern of prayer. Let's check it out. First part, he says this. We should pray like this. Father, it hallowed be thy name. Father, hallowed be thy name. When we start to pray, we should focus in on, on him, on God. And I don't know if you thought about this, but addressing almighty God in the mind of a Jew as a father, a personal father, not just the father of the nation of Israel, but as your personal father, I think was a novel concept. With few exceptions in the Old Testament, he was, wasn't addressed in such an intimate way. There's many ways to address God. After all, he's revealed himself many different ways, amen? He's the sovereign king of the universe, amen? He's the creator of the ends of the earth, amen? He is Jehovah Jireh. He gives us everything we need, amen? He is the promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God, amen? We can address him so many different ways, and I think we're permitted to do so, and I think they bless the heart of the Father, amen? But, <laughs> but the premier authority on the topic of prayer Jesus Christ, our Lord, says maybe it is most appropriate. Maybe it is most helpful for us to start by addressing him as your father. Like a child. You see, it sets the tone for your prayer, I think, is more to the point. Now listen, all of us have fathers that we are now imagining, right? And this analogy with dressing him as a personal father conjures up images for all of us. And I, the more I speak to people and talk about their dads and they talk about their dads, not everybody had a very good dad. They got ripped off, some people. Some of us have been ripped off, right? <laughs> the human imperfections that some fathers showed by not showing their sons and daughters the ways of the world and the ways of the Lord, spiritual ways, just simple things. We have a lot of people running around with dads that rejected them, abandoned them, were less than perfect, right? And other of us have had great dads, right? Phenomenal examples of dads. Dads that showed us spiritual things are important. Jesus is really the point of life. And relationships are important. They, they taught us, these fathers, how to live in this world while being a Christian. Amen? I had a dad. I have a dad like that. And recently I've been looking at him a little more intently as he's getting up in age. And I wonder how much longer I'll have my dad on this earth. And I came to the conclusion that I have a great dad. I have a princely dad. Do you know that? That was his nickname at the block plant. Remember the Cascade block? Everybody remember this? The Scudstad family owns, owned that at one time. It was where all the Masons met. 
to get their supplies. And my dad was a mason. I'm a son of a mason. Not the son of a doctor or a lawyer. Not that that would be bad. But I'm the son of a blue-collar mason. And that made me a hod carrier when I was a kid. And we went to the block plant a lot. And it was awesome going there. I noticed right away that my dad's nickname was the Prince. Vince the Prince. And I said to myself, that's weird. Maybe it just rhymes. And no one else ever called him this, especially in our family. But one day I got tired of it. <laughs> and I talked to Mark's, Pastor Mark's sister, Diane, who ran the place. I said, one time I was in there as an early teen. I said, Diane, why do you call my dad Vince the Prince? And we were inside and he was outside loading the truck with a bunch of other masons. And she said, look at him. So I was checking him out, the way he was interacting with people. And he was princely. So I call your dad a prince because he's princely. He has an air of respect in a job that's dirty. The way he treats people, the way that he has about himself is princely. That's what I thought about this week for my dad. I'd have a prince of a dad. And you know what that makes me? Some sort of royalty. I don't know what. <laughs> I think I slung mud for him. I don't think it gets me anywhere. I had a good dad, but you know what I know about my dad? When I took a hard look at him this week, he's not perfect. He's failed us kids in ways. He would be the first to admit that. This father has no human imperfection. The one we're praying to is the ideal God. He is the father that we all men should be and strive to be, but will never attain. This is the personal father that we are to come to, amen? Should lead us to speak freely. You see, how we refer to God, whether we like it or not, will affect what we say and how we pray. And it should lead us to be open and honest before our father, like a child. But it also should be balanced. Yes, daddy, I need things. But balanced with, hallowed be thy name. What's that mean? What's in a name? Name is really the sum of your character, your nature. It's really your reputation. It's hallowed be thy name. What he testifies to be as to his name and character what we're saying is, listen, may everybody agree that your name is holy and separate. It's basically saying this, Father, you are in a class all by yourself. Amen? We come to him saying, Father, hallowed be your name. And he goes on to say, your kingdom come. That's nothing more than a cry for hope in my opinion. Is it not? Maybe a cry for hope literally that we hope for the day where his kingdom, God's kingdom will come to this earth, right? That the kingdom of this earth will become his kingdom and that he will rule and reign with righteousness and justice, amen? Oh, that will be like nothing this world has ever seen, amen? He's gonna set things right and I can't wait for that because when I watch the news, it ain't right. I think that's what it may mean literally, but it means much more than that to me when I read this. And I hope it does you too. It means much more than that. It means, Father, may your kingdom come in the quite literal blood, sweat, and tears of my life. Father, in my relationship, 
your kingdom come. Right? Lord, at my work, will your kingdom come in my heart? That upside down kingdom that your son is showing us in the gospels where right first is last and last is first where others are more important than self. Where we take the low spot and then get exalted. Amen? I think that's more to the point. It's a cry for his kingdom to come in our daily life. Father, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Focus is on him. There's a quote I want to read you from an old man who is really a young man. He served the Lord his whole life. He said this, O Lord, I am a little child. I do not understand the mysteries of life. I do not know your ways in this world of men. But Lord, I pray that through these very circumstances in which I now find myself, through these present troubles and struggles, that thy kingdom come and your will be done. That's the idea of praying this way. That is a transforming way to prayer. It's a simple, childlike, trustful prayer rising out of the helpless needs of a child to touch a loving father's heart. Amen? That's the first part of this prayer. It focuses on God, his name, his kingdom. But then it flips real quick to us what we need. It centers on us and our needs. He says here, give us each day our daily bread. I like that. Daily bread. Figuratively speaking of the some of our basic necessities. It's not just bread. It's what we need day by day to make it through a day. Father, give us today our daily bread. Speaks of a Daily dependency on God. Some of us have too much money, too much reputation to feel this daily dependency. It's hard in America. All of you are too rich to feel that. All of us. (laughs) Even where the poor people are overweight, America. Right? Other countries, it's a little easier I don't know if I'm going to eat today. Give us today our daily bread. Give us what we need this day. America, wake up. We need to say this every day. I need to guard myself because in the end of the day, I have enough in my bank account to make it through many days. But yet, the perspective that God's looking for is daily dependency. Just like the Israelites picked up daily manna only for today. Tomorrow there'll be more. We need more tomorrow. Daily dependency. Amen? He goes on to say, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And this speaks of God's pardon. Not for eternity. The legal guilt and condemnation that comes from our sin is dealt with at the cross. So I'm talking about that. If you're a Christian, you've been forgiven. Amen? This is talking about, Father, forgive me of that sin that separates me from you. That sweet fellowship, abiding in you. We break that. He doesn't. We break that with our sin. And what we're saying when we say, forgive us of our sins, is I want to come back to you and repent and get close to you again. It speaks of our past needs. Daily bread speaks of our present needs. And finally, the last one here, lead us not into temptation. 
Now listen, we just have went through James 1. Pastor Matt's speaking on that. And we know in chapter 1 that it says, don't act like God tests you. He doesn't, God does not tempt or entice anyone to sin. He does, however, (laughs) allow temptation and trials into our life to test our faith. That's what James says. What we're saying here when we say lead us not into temptation, it's a recognition that we need divine protection when we get into those places, amen? We're recognizing our own weakness, that without him we'll never overcome any temptation, amen? Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us our daily bread and forgive us our sins and lead us not into temptation, amen? That's a great pattern. Think about it. This week, I've been doing it for a couple of weeks now, and I've loved it. The rest of this section that we'll entitle the Lord's Prayer is a parable. And it's simply a story that tells us what we should expect when we pray to our Father in that manner. Will he hear us? Is he ready? Does he even care that we're praying? Let's read it. We'll get the answer. And Jesus said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. See, back then, Doors were open, but when it was time to go to bed, the animals and the people came inside and they went to bed and they all weren't in their own rooms. In this society, they all slept together and everybody was quiet and everybody was doing the same things. Your kids weren't playing video games in the den and you weren't up in the master. It would have been a pain when someone knocked on your door in the middle of the night. And this guy says, I can't do that. I've already shut down for the night. He says, I tell you, Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, now know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Listen, this is often called the parable of the persistent friend. If you follow the story, he went to the house late at night. And do you remember what the friend did at first? Don't bug me. I'm not coming to the door. He was a reluctant friend, right? That was being bugged by a persistent friend. But the friend stayed at it. And he eventually, mostly because of social constraints and obligation, got up and gave him what he needed. Do you follow the story? And then Jesus goes on and kind of contrasts that 
with the way he gives gifts. This parable has a truth running alongside of it. There's nothing more than a contrast. I don't think this is imploring us to persistently pray to God, persistently pray to God so he'll finally relent and give you what you want. I don't think that's the moral or the the hidden truth alongside of this parable. I think it's a contrasting parable that just contrasts a reluctant friend that will wake up out of obligation only with our loving heavenly father who is ready to give and wants to give. Not reluctantly out of obligation, but out of love for his children. That's all it is. That's the moral of the story. Really, the moral of the story is the last verse where it says, if then you who are evil fathers <laughs> give, know how to give good gifts to, to your sons, how much greater does the heavenly father? Right? That's the moral of the story. How much more does the heavenly father give than you guys that are less than perfect? God's not going to give you a cheap imitation of what you need is what he's saying. He's going to give you what you need. Amen? The parable of the persistent friend is just a contrast. We move into a different category here. A quite interesting section in my opinion. We'll call it Jesus and this is a weird word, but Beelzebul. It's a weird name. It's a name you don't hear every day, right? Let's check it out. And with it, we will see the people that he's around challenging his motives. What's inside of him? They're going to challenge the power that is getting his ministry done. And if you connect the dots and you've been following this, it's the Holy Spirit that allows Jesus to do miracles. It's divine power. It's the finger of God. It's God's spirit enabling the power that's coming out of Jesus. These guys are challenging that in this section. They're saying it's something else. Let's read. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. And the people marveled. But some of them said this. He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept looking from a sign from heaven. So there you go. There's the challenge, right? What's the power source? He does a miracle instead of saying, whoa. Some of them said, listen, have you ever been around and seen people do certain things and you think you know from whence they get their motive, from where they get their power. Do you ever do that? It's, it's a pretty sketchy game to judge people's motives and what's energizing them, right? It's probably God's job. But we've done it, and you've been proven wrong, right? Again and again, you find out, oh my God, I was so off. This is kind of what's going on. These guys are seeing a miracle and great power the Holy Spirit working through Jesus, they think, hey, instead of taking the miracle, using it as a sign to point to something different, something amazing, validity that he is the Christ, the Messiah, they say, you know what? Some of them said this. It's from Satan. That's what's doing this. It's Beelzebub, just the nickname for Satan, kind of a 
catch-all phrase that the Jewish mind would think of anything that's evil and satanic grouped into this word Beelzebub without saying satanic. That's what they're saying. The prince of demons, everything that's evil and wicked is what's doing this. Some of them said nothing, and they just said, I want more sign. Crazy. A mute man just spoke. You want more sign? I mean, what more sign do you want? (laughs) Amazing. Check out how Jesus answers, and I love this. But he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts. There's your sign, you idiot. (laughs) He knew your thought. (laughs) He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Listen, Jesus is using logic. This is great logic. Here's the argument, okay? If I am working for Satan, why would I be casting out demons that are from Satan? Wouldn't that divide his household, divide his kingdom? Wouldn't I be working against my own kingdom if I was Satan? It's a pretty good argument, don't you think? It's a great argument. You say this is by Beelzebub? Why would Beelzebub, the power of evil, be casting out evil demons and cleaning people up? Answer me that. Riddle me that. (laughs) Right? It's great logic. Then he goes on to say, and by the way, the other Jewish exorcists that have been doing this by the power of the Holy Spirit, and there were, read Acts chapter 19, there are itinerant exorcists traveling city to city, casting out demons by the power of God. It was awesome. Cleaning people up. Reforming them, getting away the strong man, that binding them up and giving them a chance to be regenerated and cleaned up and fresh start. They were doing that. He said, by the way, those ones, are they from Beelzebub also? These ones that you personally endorse, those ones, are those also from Beelzebub? Pretty good logic. By their logic, they would have to be, right? They're using the same name. Listen, great logic. If it's from Beelzebub, why am I casting out my own minions? And number two, why don't you look at the other Jewish exorcists? Are they from Beelzebub as well? But Jesus was saying more than I'm just another Jewish exorcist. This phrase, finger of God, he says, listen, but if it is by the finger of God, my my father's kingdom has come. Now, to the Jewish mind, this phrase, finger of God, means something. To read the Gospels spoken to Jews, for the most part, you must know the Old Testament. You have to. To the Jewish mind, the finger of God meant something. It conjured back a mind of the God of the Exodus, right? Remember Exodus chapter 8, right? When God told Moses and Aaron to go into the courts of the Pharaoh and say what? Let my people go. And how did he, what was the message? Go in there and start plaguing them. 
right? And by the third plague in Exodus chapter 8, Aaron threw the staff down. Do you remember what happened? The gnats came everywhere. I think that's the third plague was the gnats all over animals and people. And do you remember what the magicians of Pharaoh tried to do? Let's duplicate this, guys. And they couldn't. And do you remember what they concluded? And their answer was to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, this is from the finger of God. I can't do that. Listen, Jesus is showing the Jewish mind that the God of the Exodus is alive and well and at work. Amen? Casting out demons. I like that. We need to keep going here, though, because Jesus, if you didn't know, is the strongest man. He's not just a strong man. Check it out, verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now listen, in the context of exercising demons, of casting out the the spiritual powers that back problems, in this context, Jesus is saying they're like strong men. Satan, his demons. There's a satanic power behind addiction. There is. There is a satanic power behind pride. There's a satanic power, right? There's demons that connect with this kind of stuff. And if you don't know that, just look and talk to people who are sucked in and bound up by strong demons. Demons and satanic power are strong Listen to me. Talk to an addict. You see that howl look in their eyes of, I'm in prison. I don't want to be bound up, but I keep getting bound up. There's someone at the doorway of my life that will not let me out. These chains, they keep wrapping me. I can't get out. Speak with people. Talk to people. It's real and it's powerful. Super powerful. Satan is strong. His demons are mighty. Do you know what? There is a stronger man. Amen? There is a stronger man. And his name is Jesus Christ. And when he comes and sets you free, you are free indeed. He takes your chains and gives them back to you and you'll hold them high and undone. The strong man comes and binds, the stronger man comes and binds the strong man. Amen? This is the only way to get recovered. You cannot with yourself. Satan will whoop you. But with God's spirit and Jesus Christ, you are stronger in and through him. Amen? He's a strong man. He's stronger than Satan. But there's a warning. When you do get freed, and you are holding your chains high and undone, when you finally get reformed, you finally let Jesus clean you up, you better look out. 
Let's read the warning here. Verse 24. When unclean spirits have gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says this, I will return to my house from which I came. It's a sobering thought. Addicts, sound familiar? Pretty familiar story. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. That's a warning. Let me tell you something right now. Reformation, getting cleaned up, is great. Amen? But it ain't enough. It is not not enough to be set free from something, swept up and tidy and looking good. Finally, that is good, but it is not enough. Unless we let the living God indwell us and protect us and guide us, something worse is going to come in and enter that clean house. Amen? Like I said, just ask a drug addict. And if you are one, that's an easy answer. We're all addicted to something. It's called sin, and it keeps coming back unless you lock God in and let him protect. It's the truth. It's a warning. It's a huge warning for us. There's a great quote by J. Vernon McGee. And J. Vernon McGee, is, is, I just love to listen to him. I'm not saying like he's like my favorite theologian, but I love listening to him because he has this southern, anybody know what I'm talking about? Jai Vardin McGee? I love it. I love his southern draw. And he has a great quote in this regard. It says this. I was going to do an impersonation, but <laughs> I'm not very good at it. I practiced it. It sounded like Ross Perot, so I think I'll just read it to you. <laughs> okay, I'll do it. Reformation is no good, friends. If everyone in the world would quit sinning right now, there would not be one more Christian. To stop sinning does not make a Christian. Reformation is not what's needed. Regeneration is what is needed. What what do you think? That is not to mock him. I just love the way, I love Southern draw. <laughs> Reformation is not what is always needed. Look, it's good. We need to change. We need like God changes. But unless we are regenerated, unless we take the everlasting life as, yes, it's eternal life by believing in Jesus Christ. We're going to live forever. But taking that concept and saying, he's indwelling me now, I have the everlasting quality of life inside of me. I've been regenerated. I have a new life. I've been born again. John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Yes, age abiding life, but right now we have God's quality of life available that it's inside of us. That's the idea, I think. We can be cleaned up, swept out, 
tidy as can be, but unless we are indwelt by the living God, the worst is still to come. Amen? That's the moral of that warning. Let's keep working, because we have a lot to work, a lot of work to do here today, and I'm going slow. I love these last two verses. They are my favorite. Check them out. Maybe it's because I'm getting grumpy and old, but check this out. This is awesome, okay? (laughs) As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which you nursed. Could you imagine that? The political uncorrectness of a woman in a crowd in these days saying, you're so impressive, God. Jesus, you're so impressive. The womb by which you came from is blessed and your breasts are just blessed. Could you imagine that? Maybe it's because I have teenagers and maybe it's because I coach young people sometimes. I love Jesus' answer. It's so politically incorrect. It's, it's borderline grumpy. Listen to what he says. Yeah, you think I'm impressive? He would say, blessed rather are those who hear my word and keep it. Yeah, I'm impressive. But you want to know what really true blessings are? It's not my mother's womb. It's when you do what I say is what he's saying. Oh, Coach Vidlak, I love your low single technique in wrestling. It's so awesome. I watched you on YouTube and... You know what I used to say when I first started wrestling? Yeah, let me show it to you for the hundredth time. And we would go through it, and I'd be politically correct and placate the kid. You know what I say now? Hey, listen, you might want to stop screwing around when I'm teaching technique. You might want to do what I say, and you might actually execute it. I've taught you this a million times. That's what he's saying. Listen. Here's the person that's happy or blessed. You do what God says. I just think that's awesome. Straight away, Jesus. I am, Jesus is impressive, but it's not enough to be impressed with Jesus is what I'm saying. You need to do the word of God. Not only hearers, but doers of the word. I think that's the idea what Jesus is saying. He just kind of put her in her place. Like, don't, don't blow smoke around me. Do what I say. That's how you get blessed. I love that. I don't know why. I think I'm getting grumpy. (laughs) Verse 29. (laughs) Do you remember in verse 16 when some of the people said, hey, listen, uh, you're doing, you're casting out demons by Beelzebub. Remember the other group of people that said, I want to see another sign? Well, Jesus is answering them right here. You want to see another sign from heaven? Here it is. It's called the sign of Jonah. Verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign. Hmm. But no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the son of man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at a judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Listen. Remember that comedian? They used to say something stupid. Someone would say something stupid and he used to say, here's your sign. Remember that? I don't even know who Jeff Foxworthy said, here's your sign. You said something stupid, here's your sign. Well, listen, 
this is in a way what Jesus is saying is, listen, you want a sign? Here's your sign. Hold this over your head. And it really is the sign of impending judgment. You want to hear more? You want to keep looking for more, looking past me, dampering the light that is trying to be shined out of my life? Here's your sign. It's called impending judgment. You're going to go down. That's your sign. The sign of Jonah, he gives two examples here. You want your sign. Here's the sign I'm going to talk to you about. It's that you're going to be judged and you're going to be condemned. And he uses two people to do this. First one is Jonah. Do you remember the story of Jonah? You got to know your Old Testament, right? He came preaching impending judgment to the Ninevites, bad people. Remember, he didn't want to go, but he reluctantly, God got him there, right? Everybody knows the story. He got him there and he preached impending judgment. Do you remember what the Ninevites did? They repented and God relented and didn't destroy them. That's the book of Jonah, kind of. It gets a little bit weird at the end, but that's the idea. The Ninevites are a sign to this generation. Jesus is preaching impending judgment, and even the people are not listening. They're not listening. They're covering up the light. It's right there in front of them, and they're not doing it. So even the evil Ninevites are condemning the Jewish generation that rejects him. The other example he gives is the queen of Sheba. You remember her story, right? She's that queen that traveled a long way, remember? Way down south to come up and what? Hear the wisdom of Solomon. She was so enthralled with the story, how wise Solomon was. They heard of his wisdom and she traveled a long ways to hear his wisdom. Compare that to this generation. The people of Palestine, his own people, would not heed his wisdom. Amen? So she's putting to shame this generation. The wisdom of Solomon is not greater than the wisdom of Jesus, is what he's saying. I am greater than Solomon, and you won't even listen to me. I am greater than Jonah. His impending judgment preaching, the Ninevites even listen to, but you won't. You guys are condemned. I think that's what he's saying here. Here's your sign, impending judgment. They were actively covering up the light of the world. Do you know that? That's what they were doing. That's why those two people put them to shame. That's the sign they carry around now is impending judgment. It didn't have to be that way. They're actively covering up the wisdom and message of Jesus. And that's why Jesus goes on and gives a little parable about the lamp of the body. He's saying, listen, this is why you're condemned. I'm right here. I'm the light of the world. I'm the light shining in darkness. I'm dispelling all darkness. And you don't even look at it. You cover it up. Check out the parable here. Verse 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, 
having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays give you light. Listen. I don't know how the optometrist got the parable of the eye and the lamp, and, but it so worked out that way. And I read this a bunch of times, and I got to be honest with you, I, just, it just, I was having a hard time with it. And what some people say about this uh, analogy, I just cannot subscribe to. I don't know why. I just, here's what I think. There's a theory about this parable that I read that hardly anybody believes. All the commentators don't go for this one, but I go for this one because it's really cool and I think it's possible and no one really knows. Here's my interpretation of this, okay? Dr. Luke here is giving an analogy of Jesus being the light, right, of your body that dispels all evil, all darkness. He is the light. Don't cover it up. And then he uses the eye, right, as an analogy, And we know now through geometrical and physiological optics that, you know, objects give light from a source and they come towards your eye. We are wonderfully made to perceive that and eyesight's possible. Well, the ancients didn't think that. I remember this from school. They had a different theory, extra mission. It's like the superhero vision. It's awesome. Do you know how they thought you saw I mean, medicine was whacked out back then, obviously. They didn't understand what was going on with the body yet. I think Dr. Luke maybe may have this in mind. They thought that light came out of the body, that your eye was the source of the conduit. Like, things were only illuminated because the light in in your living being illuminated something. Isn't that cool? Kind of messed up scientifically, but X-ray vision. Read it in that light and tell me if it doesn't make sense, though. <laughs> it does. It that Jesus is the light of our eye. He is the light of our body that dispels all darkness. So as we take him in, he looks out, illuminates things, dispels darkness, and we really see things the way they really are. Amen? Jesus is the true lamp in us, right? Projecting the light of all that is true all that is righteous and holy out of our lives and dispelling the darkness. That's the idea. Take it for what it's worth. Or you can listen to the other 99% of the commentators. The last section here, as we finish up quickly, is a conversation when Jesus responding to the religious elite, the Pharisees and the scribes. Let's check it out. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined on a table. The Pharisees were astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, the outside of the cup is more important of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did did not (laughs) he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms those things which are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Sorry, I stumbled through that, but here's what's happening. A Pharisee saw him talking, probably wanted to quiet him down a little bit, say, hey, Jesus, why don't you come to dinner with us? Jesus said, fine. I dine with losers like you all the time. He comes into his house, skips the ceremonial washing, and goes right to the table and reclines. And as you remember, the Pharisees were astonished. Oh, my goodness. 
doesn't mean a lot to us. Hardly any of us wash ceremonially before we eat, but let me put this in today's context for you, okay? Here's the context. Ocasio-Cortez invites you to dinner. I know that sounds far-fetched, but it happens, and you, 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 upset, you accept. And when you meet her, you pull up in your Dodge Hemi, getting eight miles to the gallon. You pull up, holding a Polar Pop with six straws in it because you can get more soda out of it. Carrying a Big Mac in a styrofoam cup, you take the last munch, you pass up the recycling bin, and you throw it in the trash, and you say, what's for dinner? She would be astonished, right? The Green New Deal, right? That's the kind of astonishment that we're talking here. It's you just broke every rule that I stand for. What are you doing? Jesus, you didn't wash. And Jesus uses the opportunity and the astonishment of these people of being offended to teach them a lesson about their ripe hypocrisy in their lives. It was ripe. He says, listen, all you guys are worried about the outside. Isn't the inside just as important as what he said? He said, you can clean all you want on the outside. Keep doing it. Keep scrubbing your outside with your ceremonial stuff. Keep doing that. But inside's what's important. And if you give out of that, you'll be pure. He's talking about, he's talking about true cleanliness, true purification. Being cleaned up on the outside is good, but it's not the whole story. It's the inside. They're ignoring the inside. They do all the outside things. But Jesus is asking them, don't be offended by what I did on the outside. You guys are guilty of the inside. True cleanliness comes from the inside and the outside. He uses this opportunity to give them condemnation. But woe to you, verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe of mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees. Basically saying, I condemn you. That's what he's saying. I condemn you. You ought to be ashamed of yourselves because you tithe in the most scrupulous way. You give of even your garden herbs, but yet you forget justice and love. Isn't that hypocrisy? On the outside, I even tithe of my garden herbs, but you forget to love and you're being in rendering injustice to your people? Jesus says, shame on you. He does another shame, another condemnation. He says, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogue and the greetings in the marketplace. This is what this means. Like You always take the best place. You want to be seen. You're taking the high place. In other parts of the gospel, Jesus said, you should go to the low place. Let someone tell you to move up. You don't go and seek glory and honor said they love the greetings in the marketplace. You know these kind of people? Hey, Dan. Well, you can call me Dr. Vidlak. I am an optometrist. You'll still have to call 911 if you go down, but I am a doctor. You ever know people like that? Call me by my title, please. This is what he's saying. Woe on you. Shame on you for wanting glory and honor for yourself. Christians are supposed to take the low spot. Be humble people. Not seek self-glorification. That's all he's saying to them. The final one. Woe is you for you like unmarked graves. And people walk over them without knowing it. 
Woe on the Pharisees for not wanting to be defiled by walking over graves. That's what they did. They marked them with white sepulchers, right? They would get around them so they weren't defiled. And what he's saying is, listen, you're like unmarked graves. People are defiled by being around you. People are walking them over and they're being condemned. You're leading them the wrong way. You're leading them away from me is what he would say. So woe on you. Verse 45, well, the lawyers get into it, the scribes. They say, one of the lawyers answered him saying, teacher, these things that you say insult us also. I like that. Lawyers, now listen, these two class of people, the scribes or the lawyers, same people, they were more of the professional class. They really interpreted and wrote the laws, rewrote them. That's what they did. They were like a professional class of people, kind of like an attorney now, right? They interpreted the law, wrote it, and then they handed it off to the Pharisees. They were more of the religious political class. Their job wasn't to interpret the law. Theirs were were to um, uh, enforce the law and push the law, right? Get it out there. Does that sound familiar today? That's what happens. You read the news, the district attorney made a calling on this law, and now politicians are pushing this law. It's exactly the same way it works now, right? They're they're really in cahoots, and so the lawyers listening to all the condemnation for the people who actually... um, uh, uh, support the laws that they wrote and enforce them. They say, you're starting to offend me. And Jesus said, you want some of this? That's not what he said, but it's kind of what he said. He said, you want some of this? Listen, he says, woe to you. I condemn you lawyers also. Why? For you load burdens upon people that are hard to bear and you yourself do not touch the burdens with one finger. That's hypocrisy. Do you know people like that in charge? I'm going to load. I'm going to interpret the laws so hyper-legalistic that it's going to present a burden to the average person. But I am not going to sacrifice anything. When you look at my life, I don't hurt at all. The laws I'm writing, and I'm cheating a little bit. I'm being hyper-legalistic with it. I'm crossing every T and dotting every I for you are crushing the average Jew, Jesus would say. The poor people, this lower class of people is dying under your burdens. And when I look at you, you don't even hurt. You're not even following the same rules, you see. And he says, shame on you. Woe to you, verse 47, for you build the tombs of the prophets who your fathers killed, so you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. He just took them outside of the woodshed. Did you hear that? Those are some hard words. He said, the blood is on your hands. You keep building these nice tombs. 
You keep honoring dead prophets, but the live ones you kill. One commentator said the only prophet that the lawyers like, the scribes likes, was a dead one. We'll honor you once you're dead because you have no power. Let's memorialize you. But the ones that are alive, the more recent ones, Zechariah, John the Baptist, even Jesus' words coming, uh-uh, we're going to kill you because you're going to take away power from us. The only prophets they like were dead old ones. Jesus says, woe to you. I condemn you. Lastly, woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourself, and you hindered those who were entering. Finally, he ties one more condemnation around their neck, and he says, shame on you for not listening to the knowledge that I'm giving. Also, shame on you for keeping my people and this generation from it, leading them astray. Condemnation. The last two verses of this chapter says this. As he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Jesus just fanned the flames. (laughs) He just dropped the bomb. He condemned them. Those are harsh words. And now he fanned it, and now it's raging, and now they're watching. And if I didn't know better, I think Jesus is doing whatever he can to get on his cross to be the savior of the world. If I didn't know better, but maybe he was doing this. And I'm thankful. Thankful. He's the savior of the world. One step closer to his cross. Amen? Amen. Father, heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. I pray that your kingdom would come in our lives today as we go home, as it is in heaven. I pray that you'd bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.